Welcome to the hashtag Fairing Pod. At Fairing, people come first. My name is Zoya Mabuto Mugoditwa. As always, I'm really excited to be in conversation today. And I'm joined, in fact, today by a clinical psychologist uh, who's Johannesburg-based and in private practice. And in fact, we have connected before. We've had a conversation before. So it's wonderful to welcome back Mandy Rodriguez. Uh, a really warm welcome back to you, Mandy. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Always a pleasure. Wonderful. So, Mandy, in this episode, we will be discussing postnatal or dealing with postnatal depression. And maybe for those who have not heard, uh, you know, your voice before or listened to you share, tell us a little bit about yourself to kickstart the conversation and then also lead that into what it is that you do and how it links to the topic or the conversation that we're going to be having today. Thank you. So I'm Mandy Rodriguez. I am a clinical psychologist in private practice. I also represent the SASREC board, which is the Infertility Board of South Africa, as chairperson of their counseling arm. I've been in practice for 30 years now and started off in women's health and then generally led to preconception, pregnancy, post-pregnancy, and then, of course, couples. A lot of my work is done in the realm of infertility and stress Mm. and also with moms and parents because it's no longer just moms today Mm. who are going through a postnatal adjustment and also picking up risk factors on how to predict what's going to happen and how we manage that prior to the postnatal depression. And of course, we'll come to to, to unpacking uh, some of those questions a little bit later. But let's move back a couple of steps and really sort of start at the beginning. And I think the beginning for me looks like providing a brief overview of postnatal depression. Uh, what is it and what is its prevalence amongst new mums? So how common is it? Postnatal depression is the most underdiagnosed psychiatric condition. And that includes depression, anxiety, any of the psychiatric access one disorders that we can see. The prevalence is about 31 to 50 percent of new parents. And it is so underreported because it is stigmatized. Mm. And I think especially in the media lately with what happened in New Zealand, with the woman we know who killed her two children and her, her older child, and then attempted to take her own life. The problem is the whole world has got this perception that postnatal depression is a lack of attachment to your baby. Hmm. And in fact, what happened there was something that we call a postpartum psychosis. And I need to tell the listeners that's extremely rare. That's 2% to even 1% of women after birth present with a postpartum psychosis which is where there's no attachment to their baby and where they fear they're going to harm their baby. So postnatal depression is more like an anxiety. Mm. In fact, I often say to the new moms, it's almost an unnatural attachment to your baby. You're more attached than the average mom. You're more anxious about your baby. And, and and maybe just, I mean, unpack that a little bit for me. So when you talk about I'm anxious, I'm, I'm, I'm very attached to this child, what, what am I anxious about? What are some of those thoughts that are going through my mind? How do I keep this baby alive? Uh-huh. How do I know when this baby's hungry? 
if she's distressed or he's distressed, how do I interpret these signals? It is fear of being alone with your baby. Mm -hmm. A lot of these parents say as their husbands or partners go back to work, they're faced with this dread of this baby waking up. Mm. And I think the problem is that a Monday becomes like a Sunday becomes like a public holiday. Mm. Every day it's nappy to nappy and feed to feed. And there's this anxiety all the time that I should be doing more or I should be making my baby happy. Mm. I should be doing what the books tell me to do. Sure. And so it starts with this unnatural anxiety around the baby potentially waking up or when it's very small, Mm. some harm happening during the night or a cot death or Mm. the baby sleeping too long. So listening to you. I'm taken back to my own experiences and I'm going, but aren't these the typical challenges of new parenthood uh, where you become a little bit obsessive about keeping this this little person alive, where you do have some level of anxiety? I'm curious about the distinction then between kind of your typical challenges of new parenthood and where it crosses over to then becoming postnatal depression. How do we distinguish between the two? We start distinguishing that Initially, after delivery, probably two to three days afterwards, we do get baby blues. Mm -hmm. That's when the mom's usually in the ward or she's at home and suddenly she'll start crying even though she's not anxious. She will cry when she's happy. It'll be a hormonal adjustment that there's not really a trigger that makes you upset. Mm -hmm. That then passes. So... By the weekend, you're a little bit more confident after a week. But then the interesting thing that happens is a lack of sleep. And this compounds by three weeks. Mm. I always say to my parents, at three weeks, and in fact to the clinicians involved, three weeks is a pivotal change where the anxiety and the sleep actually collide. Mm. So the lack of sleep makes them even more anxious. And that's when the anxiety becomes what we call non-functional anxiety. Mm -hmm. It's dysfunctional and disproportionate to what they're going through. Mm. So at the very beginning, it was, do I need to change a nappy? Do I need to feed the baby? And it's transient. You feed the baby and the anxiety goes Mm. and you're waiting for the next feed. By the time postnatal depression sets in, there's a chronic anxiety from morning until night and also an inability to often sleep. As exhausted as you are, Mm. you cannot fall asleep. So, so, I mean, so would you say then that, um, you know, lack of sleep would be one of the common risk factors that contribute to the development of postnatal depression? Yes, I would definitely say that There are other risk factors Mm -hmm. that we can go into, but compounded with the lack of sleep. Mm. I'm not saying everyone should get a night nurse. Nobody can afford a night nurse. You cannot get someone to look after your baby at night. Mm. You cannot always nap when your baby's napping. Mm. But lack of sleep, there's a reason why it's a torture. um, How can I say? A a means to torture people. Yes. it actually can drive you insane. It can yep. make you feel you hallucinating. So what happens is as your lack of sleep compounds, your resilience goes down. Mm. And even the simplest task, like getting dressed in the morning, mm. the simplest task of 
wiping your baby or bathing mm. your baby becomes overwhelming. Mm. Then you know a task I was managing with my baby at the very beginning and I'm not now. We know it's become dysfunctional. Mm. I mean, again, as you're speaking, you triggered <laughs> something, I think. I, I had wanted to forget. So so the lack of sleep. I had a baby who presented with colic. And this was my first child. And so this child used to scream for three months on end, which meant I wasn't sleeping. And I think the point about sleep is relevant. And I remember at some point praying, going, please, please, somebody <laughs> make this baby stop. Because I actually started to feel like I was going a little bit loony um, because there was just like total lack of sleep yes. from this baby who was crying nonstop. Yes. So I hear the bit about the sleep. Take me through the other sort of common risk factors. We can identify risk factors even prior to the woman falling pregnant. Mm. I often say to obstetricians, if we could do a checklist mm -hmm. that looks at, number one, is this person what we call a type A personality? Meaning, are they perfectionists? Because mm. as soon as a baby is born and things don't go according to plan, we know then that they're at risk. So mm. that's number one. Number two, if they've got a history of bipolar mood disorder, bipolar mood disorder or the old phrase of manic depression, we know that's hormonally based. Mm. Anyone with that previous diagnosis has a chance when their baby's born and the hormones go out of sync mm. to be at risk for a postpartum depression. Anyone who has a history of depression during their pregnancy, so Prenatal depression or anxiety would be risk number three. Hmm. A poor relationship with the mother figure is a very interesting one. Hmm. If their mother figure is maybe living overseas or their mother has got a poor relationship with them or possibly she's deceased. We know when I went to WITS and I did my undergrad, our first book we got on health psychology was traditional childbirth saying that back in the day, the midwives were your elders, mm. your granny, mm. your mother, mm. your auntie, mm. because it is almost a ev evolutionary fact that when you have a baby, you bond more to the female elders. And if there is no female role model to mm. bond to, we know they're at risk. Mm. Then we have a look at something like obviously support structures, single moms, lack of finances. And last factor is a complication at birth, uh. which could be them expecting a natural delivery and suddenly it becomes a C-section. Mm. So when you speak to your patients is to have a birth plan if they want, mm. but to have an alternate birth plan. Mm. Because if it doesn't go according to plan, these moms tend to present with, some sort of adjustment issues afterwards. Whew. It's a lot of risk factors. <laughs> yeah, it is. It is quite a, I mean, yeah. Let me ask the follow on question, right? Because I'm, I'm thinking about just thinking through these multiple risk factors. Would you say that there are ways in which we can prevent um, you know, the risk of postnatal depression, just thinking through some of these um, risk factors that you've shared. Um, are, there, are there strategies? Are, are there things we can do to actually minimize the risk of postnatal depression? 
Um, so if I think about, you know, a, a mother who's deceased, obviously there you can't do anything about it, but potentially you could even surround yourself uh, with mother figures because your your parent is no longer there. Take me through strategies or things that we can do to minimize the risk. First thing I always say is if there is a history of a psychiatric illness, mm. what is our first call when we're trying to conceive is we stop anything we perceive is going to be dangerous for the pregnancy. Okay. We stop smoking. We try and eat differently. Mm. And people with a history of psychiatric illness tend to stop their chronic medication. Mm-hmm. They do this prior to falling pregnant, and that's a big risk factor. I did a talk with psychiatrists last week saying if someone has any of chronic depression or bipolar mood disorder, please tell them not to stop their checkups or their chronic medications if possible. If you don't have a female role model in your life, there are groups that you can start joining. Mm. There are online groups. And Mm. when your baby is a few weeks old, I say to parents, join a Moms and babes group. Join mm. a mommy and me group. Mm. So it needn't be an elder, but it could just be another mother in the same position. Mm. If you happen to be fortunate enough to attend antenatal classes, those are the moms who have a baby around the same time as you. Mm. That is your, your tribe, so mm. to say. Mm. Online as well, on Facebook and social media, there are groups who have birth you know, they talk about their baby being due around the same time and they form groups so that everyone is going through similar kind of issues around about the same time. Mm. And these groups are important to join. And also then to double check that once the baby's born is to have some plan for support, mm. some kind of strategy that if things get out of hand, this is someone you can call or this mm. is someone you can turn to especially for the single parents, of which we know that there are many, if we look specifically in South Africa. I mean, I almost think that we we need to, I don't know, almost destigmatize the perception that asking for help as a new mother renders you incapable. And I think there's also a stigma around that, kind of this need to, to prove to the world that you can do this thing. And so you shy away from, uh, I don't know, engaging in those support groups, um, seeking the help that would, you know, potentially mm-hmm. even assist to manage those risk factors, uh, you know, that lead to postnatal depression. So there's a stigma around that as well. There is a stigma. There's also, remember I said that often postnatal depression is an insecure or superly anxious relationship with your baby. Mm. So you don't want to necessarily delegate your new baby to some to someone you don't know mm. or even to allowing your sister to hold the baby and let you sleep. Mm. There's so much anxiety around surrounding the safety of your baby that you are reluctant even when help is offered sure. to accept it. Sure. And, and maybe let's also just connect to something you said earlier about the importance of, so if you presented, uh, you know, with, uh, and I'm trying to use the, the correct terminology, with a bipolar disorder or any of that kind of uh, disorder, that there the, the often tends to be this this tendency 
to, to then say I'm going to stop taking my chronic medication because I've discovered I'm going to fall. I mean, I'm, I'm pregnant or I'm expecting or I'm going to, yes. um, you know, uh, plan to have, to have a baby. Is that not is that not as a result of of the concerns around the impact of that medication on on the baby? Just let's let's help to clear mm. some of that because I think when when someone decides to stop taking their chronic medication, often it's linked to concerns about the safety of the baby and the health in the pregnancy itself. It is. That's why we have meetings with psychiatrists in terms of women's health, as to say what do we know has got the least risk for the baby in utero? Mm. And we almost have to balance or allow the patient to make that choice that I'm going to stop my medication. However, I am going to go for regular Uh follow-ups. At the end of the day, you've got to look at the two as as a unit, as Mm. if the mom is struggling afterwards and this bipolar emerges or she has an episode of mania afterwards, She's not going to be a good mother and available. So we've got to almost have a professional way out. What can we do to mitigate against her not being a functional mother Mm. versus the potential harm it may cause to the baby? And there are new medications now that we know have been tested and are safer than others. Mm. All the risk factors are not as severe as what we used to think in the past. There are specifically for mood disorders some medications that are an absolute no-no. And for those patients, they need to seek support from a psychiatrist who can then change their medication prior to them falling pregnant Mm. to something that is safer. Okay. So let's let's move to, you know, the the, the relationship or, you know, the impact – you know, that that having postnatal depression could have in terms of the parent-child relationship. Um, what are some of the impact of that? The impact, I believe, is oftentimes because you are very anxious about the baby, the first thing you'll do is try and keep your baby to yourself. Yeah. I have seen a lot of moms whose baby are maybe is maybe insecure at eight months and has severe separation anxiety, only wants to be with the mother. So it's cool when that baby is small and newborn because it knows no different. But as it gets older and you're preventing other people from bonding with your baby, in the long run, it's going to harm you and your baby. In terms of anxiety as well, you don't get to enjoy that time with your baby when it's still little. And you look back After a year, two years, you emerge from this haze of living nappy to nappy and feed to feed, and there's huge regrets. Mm. There's oftentimes these regrets as to why didn't I enjoy each of these stages? Why did I let pass them by? Why didn't I let the baby sleep in my bed for longer or Mm. co-sleep? There's all, and, and then these huge expectations from society in terms of breastfeeding. I, Often see, we know breast is best and that's what we advocate. (laughs) But sometimes this makes mothers more anxious because you can imagine a perfectionist Mm. or a baby that's crying is you don't know how much the baby's eating. You're maybe demand feeding. And sometimes it is more anxiety provoking for the mom 
to do that mm-hmm. than to maybe say, I will possibly try a formula and see how this goes. Mm. You brought something interesting up about reflux and in newborns. Mm. And usually the first 10 to 11 days, maybe the first two weeks, even then the baby's gut is not completely formed. So they weren't early on in the labor ward or maternity or even at home in that first week or two Mm. present with colic. It's as as it goes a little bit further, probably week three, when you sleep deprived, that suddenly the gut and all of that starts presenting with this inability to bring up a wind or mm. this this reflux, and it it reaches a pivotal point around about six eight weeks, mm. and so we imagine those first ten days we've got this easy baby because they sleep, we got to wake them for feeds. And then they start having longer awake periods. Mm. And we all talk about that suicide hour, which is actually two hours, I always say to moms, between five and seven at night. Mm. And that's because you're exhausted. Your baby's exhausted. You're trying to multitask. Mm. And that's when all the chaos is going to happen and you're not going to settle your baby. Mm. I think as a new mother, you need to make those moments predictable And we'll get to what other people can maybe do to help you. Mm. You may not delegate your baby to a neighbor or to a nanny that you've known forever because you're still insecure about it. Mm. But you can accept food cooked by a neighbor. Mm. You can accept somebody helping you potentially with other kids or helping you with errands while you with your baby feeding your baby. Mm. You needn't delegate your baby to someone, mm. but delegate the other stuff that's easier to to hand out. I mean, I love that. And I think it puts a wonderful spin on this idea of it takes a village to raise a child because I think delegating those other tasks to the village as well um, can play a huge role uh, in terms mm. of giving you kind of some peace of mind or some ability to not have to think about uh, yes. all the different demands. Mm. I want to I want to still stay on this parent-child relationship one, and and this is because I still have a couple of questions, and I think what's sitting in my mind is, could there be long-term sort of impact? And by this I mean so so you speak to how. You know, there could be that separation anxiety as one example of, of uh, you know, the impact of postnatal depression on the parent and child. Have we seen uh, through your experience and the research any long-term impact or effect as a result of a child who was with a mother who struggled with postnatal depression for X amount of time? I think when we look at more severe cases where the mom's not attaching to her baby, uh then we maybe have a long-term impact in terms of when the baby's older, the mom is maybe then more engaging. I'd like to tell parents out there that postnatal depression is not going to create this bad attachment going forward because it's going to stigmatize moms more. I'd rather say that you're more attached to your baby if it happens to be a severe case where you've withdrawn And we do get moms like that who will then just go and sleep and withdraw and delegate all care to somebody Mm. else. That is quite unusual. And when that does happen, yes, there could be a longer-term impact, Mm. but it can be remedied. 
Okay. It is something that we can then bring in strategies for the mom on how to engage with that baby mm. and how to form a relationship going forward so that there is no long-term impact. We know most important for toddlers and babies is a secure relationship. Mm. And that foundation is within the first two years of life. Mm. A newborn baby, so long as it's actually been fed mm. and it's actually been having its nappy changed, it doesn't matter if you're not bathing it. Mm. It doesn't matter if you don't stimulate that baby. Mm. Let's face it, in a big family, babies <laughs> are not stimulated. <laughs> they are not given black and white images to look at. Mm. They might lie in NICU. Mm. Look at babies in NICU. They lie in the ICU mm. for maybe three months. They don't have a poorer relationship with their mothers and their parents when they come home. Mm. That's three months of being looked after separate to their parents. Mm. And if these babies don't have an insecure attachment to their mother, mm. then I don't, you know, I don't think that it's not remedied for you to adjust that relationship. I believe the baby for those first three months is something that when it comes home, when you're feeling better, your head's above water, mm. you can you can kind of remedy that relationship. And I don't believe there'll be a long-term impact. Hmm. That's making me smile. Yes. You know, it's very encouraging. And I think, I mean, if I'm imagining somebody who's going through that right now, um, that message is encouraging because it suggests to me that this too shall pass, you know, yes. but, but, but additional to that, um, you know, that not all is, is going to be lost. And so it feels very hopeful and encouraging, particularly to the person who might be navigating uh, that challenge right, you know, this very yes. moment. Yes. You, you also mentioned a time frame. And you said, so, you know, you navigate, uh, you know, this challenging time. You've got the postnatal depression. And then you said, and then after two years, it starts to get better. Is this, does this mean that it, it, it typically takes or lasts for up to two years? I think without treatment or management, then generally a year. Uh -huh. I say two years because the impact on a relationship is on average 18 months. When I see couples and they've got a new baby, my husband used to be a GP. And to all the new fathers, they would come in that first year and say, I can't take it anymore. I've been displaced. My wife doesn't stop crying. And he was always saying, don't make that decision until the baby is 18 months. Mm. With postnatal depression, I usually see it for about a year if there's no treatment. Mm. And by then the baby's more mobile. The baby's more independent. You can respond to its needs and you're more likely to be go, have gone back to work, mm -hmm. which is something that is sometimes a recommendation we have for mothers with a potential postnatal depression mm. is let's not have you sit at home with this baby 24-7. Mm. Maybe you need to step out and go to work and come home, and it's about not the quantity time. Mm. It's about the quality, even if it's 15 minutes. Mm. There's an acronym, acronym we use called the PRIDE way with children. Say that again, the PRIDE. PRIDE way. P-R-I-D-E way. Yes. Okay. So even if you have 15 minutes with your baby, mm -hmm. if you can use, or your toddler, praise during that moment, reinforcement, which in a baby would mean 
if the baby is smiling at you, you respond back in a positive way. Imitation. Mm-hmm. So if your toddler wants to play with cars, you don't go in with a puzzle. You imitate the baby's play. Description, which is a way that you describe what the child is doing. Mm-hmm. And empathy. So it's positive emotion during that 15 minutes, no negative reinforcement, no punishment, no nothing. You can allow for the consequences outside of that time. But if you can cover those five acronyms in a 10 to 15 minute period, that's quality time. You don't need 10 hours because you're not going to do that. And how long do you do this for? I mean, I'm finding this relevant, I think, for for, for even the older babes. Yes. (laughs) Even if it's when I speak to au pairs and and parents and say, how do we get this quality time in? Even if it's 15 minutes on a given day Mm. of deliberate play, Mm. there's a lovely TED Talk called Serve and Return. Mm -hmm. And it is about they've got a child talking on it. And I think she's probably about five years old. Oh, yes. Yes, she's the youngest TED speaker. She's the youngest TED speaker. And she's telling, she's almost kind of telling adults how to to treat children. Yes. Yes. And her whole message is when the, and and, and she demonstrates it live on her TED Talk with a, I think the baby's probably six or seven months old. Mm. And just the father in, in two or three minutes, if he stops looking at his cell phone and gives some response to that info, Mm. There's this huge connection, and that is in two or three minutes. Mm. Her whole talk is about just return the communication back either in a verbal or nonverbal way, mm. and that can take you five minutes or ten minutes. It needn't be the or whole day. Or a minute. Day. Or a minute. <laughs> Absolutely. Wow. Okay. So so you brought in fathers in the earlier part of this response. Um, you know, you spoke about these young couples who come in. You said this father's going, oh, you're into this and my wife cries all the time and I'm not sure what to do. Let's mm-hmm. talk a little bit about, you know, some of the challenges that fathers may face, uh, particularly in a postnatal depression situation. How, how do we address some of those? Again, I was talking at a psychiatric conference where they recognized that new fathers also present with a postnatal depression. This might not be due to lack of sleep because they might be sleeping in another room, but it's almost a lack of their partner being Mm. there exclusively for them and feeling in some way displaced by the child. But it is not as concrete as that. It is more about the loss of the relationship that was there before Mm. and the fear that it's not going to return. Mm. I need to tell dads it is going to return. (laughs) We just need to, you know, out of all the phases a woman or a person can go through in the entire lifespan, Mm. no matter what illness, Mm. pregnancy and giving birth has the greatest hormonal changes in a a one-second or a one-minute moment than anything else more than a heart attack, more than anything you can go to in terms of the disruption. And fathers need to be cognizant of this. So they often experience this loss. They feel helpless. And Mm. mothers tend to not have the expectations out there for their husbands in terms of when the baby arrives. Mm. We all assume nowadays there'll be equal responsibility. And let's face it, it doesn't end up being like that. Because a lot of women are breastfeeding, mm. a lot of women, the perfectionists don't trust their husbands that he's going to feed the baby properly or they over 
over scrutinize what he's doing. Hmm. So even when he tries to make some kind of um, move towards helping out, he's got someone on his shoulder the whole time. So she's not taking a break. Hmm. So women need to trust that their baby's going to be safe. There's very little. If you look at how doctors deliver babies, hmm. they hold them upside down. They tap them on the back. <laughs> they put tubes down their throat. And these babies survive. Exactly. They're very resilient. Mm. Very resilient. So fathers oftentimes withdraw mm. from that relationship. Mm. We call it independent coping. They deal with things with their friends, which mm. might involve going out a bit more, mm. drinking a bit more. Mm. Now you've got a mom who hasn't drank for nine months, mm -hmm. is maybe not drinking at this stage. Mm. The difference between the two becomes bigger and bigger, mm. and she gets resentful and angry, mm. and he doesn't know what to do. So the best thing he does is he withdraws, and that's when the problems come in. So, so I mean, again, I, I will always link it to some of the experiences that I've had. And I think in principle, I love what you're saying about how, I mean, it's important for, for women to be able to exercise empathy towards the experience fathers are having and vice versa, um, you know, that, that he's able to exercise some level of empathy. But I don't think neither parties know enough about what's happening to be able to respond in that way. Yes. And so this is where I, 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 I sit with the question around, you know, is, is this the responsibility or is it part responsibility um, of healthcare professionals um, to better support individuals, not just those dealing with postnatal depression, but these individuals who are about to navigate something like childbirth for the first time. So if my husband, for example, had a sense that I was going to have this kind of, I don't know, earthquake level um, disruption to my hormones, which would have me not even knowing what's happening, I don't even know what's happening to me. I just know I feel strange. I feel different. I feel weird. I'm tired. I'm, you know, yeah. he's able to have the appreciation. And, and likewise, that, that I'm able to understand that he may experience feelings of, I don't know what to do here. And so the tendency might be to withdraw. Yes. You know, what, what do you say there? I don't remember getting this education. Yeah. No, <laughs> I think it is so important for obstetricians. And nowadays they do take patient centeredness into account. Okay. We are recognizing more and more that it's a couple that we're dealing with, whereas historically it was just the woman. Mm. It was just the, the gynecologist or obstetrician focusing on the woman and her health. And there's been a movement prior to COVID, but exacerbated by COVID where organizations have had a look at complaints. There was one recently in Pretoria where a father sue is busy suing a private hospital because he states that they didn't put a divider between his wife and what was happening with her C-section. And he says it, it irrevocably changed his relationship with his wife. And let me tell you, I would never have thought that would go to court. It is going to court. And... Patients are becoming more empowered to actually complain about this person or lack of person-centered approach mm. in doctors mm. if they do not prepare them adequately. So I really believe it's important that something like an antenatal class is even if 
you go on those classes, but with your partner. Mm. And there's a lot nowadays that it can be a day class, an eight-hour class where there are other fathers. You might not be doing a vaginal delivery. You might not be planning to breastfeed or you might be, Mm. but it's getting that midwife to actually explain to fathers what the mother goes through. And they are in antenatal classes taking this more into account. Mm. And also when you go for baby weigh-ins, if we can get the father to go for one or two of those weigh-ins with the newborn baby, where the nurse or the community nurse is able to say, this is what's happening now. Mm. Another thing that happens in new moms is when you're pregnant and put on weight, you've got this nice, hopefully round tummy. (laughs) There's a reason why you're overweight. Your husband is often nurturing towards you because you're carrying his baby. When that baby comes, there's a huge shift in self-esteem in the woman, a huge shift in, I feel fat now. It's no longer about I'm feeding a baby. I feel fat. My body was supposed to go back to normal. And the men I see lately are very much in a hurry to get those wives Mm. back to what they were before, Mm. not realizing that it takes a good few months. And breastfeeding is not the cure all for losing all that weight. And you can't exercise Mm. immediately. So we almost need to give husbands a realistic expectation of when will my wife be a wife again? Mm. because they have expectations about intercourse. And I was saying that on average, Mm. some studies say it takes 18 months Mm. to get that, even that first uh, sexual experience, get to start it going again. Mm. It can take as long as 18 months. Mm. And we need to be patient on both sides in Mm. terms of that. And there's the fear, I'm going to fall pregnant again. Mm. And there's this fear in terms of my wife is a mother, mm. but she's also a sexual being. And how do I how do I put the two together? And how does she put the two roles together? Mm. I mean, I think what you've just shared for me is so powerful, um, certainly. I think it, it talks to the need for that open communication between couples. It talks to the importance of us really taking a realistic picture or look at at the situation that we're finding ourselves in and then thinking around kind of what are the best ways to then give support to the other from a place of empathy and understanding. Mm -hmm. So I love, I mean, I love what you've just shared. And I think, you know, more and more couples um, must be encouraged, um, you know, to have those conversations, not necessarily just amongst themselves, but also with their obstetricians um, and the healthcare providers who are walking that journey with them. I'm also encouraged by... You know, the fact that we're not going to leave the fathers out. I think they're very much a part of the conversation and, you know, advances in in even just how we see things and how we do things and mindset shifts around the roles fathers play um, continues to also be encouraging to say daddies have got to play a role. And we've also got to almost be mindful to include them um, in that journey. So I'm really enjoying uh, some some of what you're sharing with me. And those very practical, um, you know, real life examples. Let's let's talk a little bit about, and this is just building on that support, I think, um, that we've been discussing. What, what, what is the role that, and let's extend it to family, what is the role that family members can play in supporting someone with postnatal depression? 
first of all, when you're a new mom and when you're pregnant or trying for babies, people are quick to give advice. I used to say if we could wear a bib that says the only person I'm going to listen to is my obstetrician Mm -hmm. because everyone has some word of advice. Everyone has some opinion on your type of delivery, Mm. whether you're breastfeeding or not, how did you conceive, whether you're going back to work. And people pass judgments very quickly. Mm. Firstly, I'd say to family, do not pass any judgments. Mm. We're quick to say our elders, put a hat on the baby. Are the feet are cold? If a new mother does not ask for advice, Mm. do not give it. She's struggling already to come to terms with her own rhythm. Mm. So that's number one. Number two is don't all rush to the hospital. (laughs) Everyone (laughs) wants to come and see this new baby. Everyone wants to be just outside the delivery room. And I always say to moms, don't put anyone on the list that you potentially can't turn away. Put no one on your list Mm. except your husband. Mm. If you're feeling okay the next day Mm. or the next day, then allow someone to come into the ward or at home Mm. because everyone wants to come visit the baby and you're anxious about it and you're still trying to recover from from a big delivery or a, or a C-section. Mm. So people need to just respect your privacy. And the other thing is do things that will not require much of the parents, such as dropping off a meal. You don't need to ask their opinion. Mm. You don't need to ask if they need help because we're not likely to ask for help. We're not mm. likely to say, I need help with dinner or I need help with mm. with um, fetching or doing an errand or getting a lift to the pediatrician. Offer it and just do it mm. when it's not intruding on her because it's simple to drop off a meal mm. or to ask if you need a drive to the pediatrician or to the clinic. Those and in instances where there is a partner, I imagine that you could then communicate with a partner to sort of better understand what the what the needs are. Yes, okay. yes. And if your partner can't possibly fulfill those needs because you're both looking after this baby, especially things like meals, yes. is allow other people to do it or get takeaways, mm. get, get frozen meals for the next week mm. or the next month. Mm. I, I love the, the second one about the, the privacy. And in fact, again, it made me think about how. So in African culture, very interestingly, there is this, I don't know if it's a tradition or what, but I was told certainly that after I'd had a baby, I was to go on a three-month hiatus, like a break. So no one was to come into our space to visit the baby, to see the baby, to give us time to bond and for me to just acclimatize to this. So one family member was assigned to come and stay with us. Um, and outside of that, nobody comes. And this has been the case with all three children, where people don't come until after the three months has been observed. Um, so in Kosa, they say, we are fukam. Okay. Which means that you literally go into like this, this period of adjusting to this new role. So people can come and drop things off, but they give us that space and that time. And I found that by the time the three months passed, I was ready to go out into the world. Okay. 
And so and it I was very interesting that you spoke to that as, as something that's quite important to really kind of give them space. And it doesn't need to be three months, of course. Yes. You yes. know, three months yes. might be a bit drastic. But yes. <laughs> look, and a, a lot of moms would really appreciate that. And I heard that from a lot of moms during COVID. They mm. said to me, Mandy, thank goodness I didn't have to go out with my baby. Mm. I didn't have anyone visiting. I didn't need to turn anyone away. But there's some moms like I know after my deliveries, I needed to get out the house. Mm. With my last one, he was six <laughs> weeks old and I would take him to my reception desk and she would look after him under the table mm. because I needed some respite from just looking after children. It mm. made me a better mother. Mm. So if there's a demand of three months or six weeks because a lot of pediatricians do say if a baby has been born early mm. or had RSV or some type of infection, don't go out or don't let the baby go to a crash for X amount of months. Mm. And that can be very isolating because if you've got yourself and your husband who are possibly both going through an adjustment, mm. that becomes your entire focus of your world is look how bad and overwhelming this is. Look at this microsystem that you have, and you mm. don't realize that outside of it, it's not that bad. So I, I really would urge that that when moms and dads feel ready, mm. then maybe you know allow some visitors over or allow yourself. You take the lead, and you determine. Maybe I need to have contact with somebody else. And I think that links beautifully to the to the point around the advice, because I think I think the, the the challenge with advice oftentimes is that it's linked to either an experience I've had, so it's from my experience, you know, when I, uh, you know, was 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 expecting, or when I had my first child, this is what I did, mm. and then wanting to impose that, and sometimes it's with the best intentions, mm. but wanting to impose that on somebody whose experience is completely different to yours. Yes. And so I love what you're saying about that, that perhaps it really is about you creating that room for yourself to feel comfortable. And it's not about the time frame. No. It's about when I feel like I'm in a good place, I'm, I'm comfortable, I'd now like to re-engage with the world. Yes. You know, that, that, that you, you almost heed or follow what, what works best for you. And, and when you're ready to ask a question, mm. that's when a family member can give advice, mm. but not unsolicited. Mm. But when, when you are ready to ask about heat or bottles or sterilizing, then they can give the information. They can give the feedback. Okay. So, so as we, as we come to a close, I think I want us to really just, you know, focus a little bit on, um, you know, different approaches um, that can assist in treating postnatal depression. So, I mean, I'm thinking about therapeutic approaches. I'm even thinking about are there self-care strategies? Let's, let's talk a little bit about that. And maybe let's start with the therapeutic approaches. Anything that's proven effective in treating postnatal depression? There are certain medications that some obstetricians give mm -hmm. that can stimulate breastfeeding, stimulate breast milk or the production of breast milk. Mm. And a side effect over the years was recognizing that it improved mood. Mm -hmm. So first line of call is oftentimes if there's not enough breast milk, maybe your obstetrician would prescribe something. The second line is then saying, 
when you go for antenatal classes mm. is maybe establish some sort of WhatsApp group or some sort of contact that you have with mothers who are first-time mothers like you or maybe have other children, but women who are similar or in mm. similar positions to you. So you've got that going into the pregnancy. Mm. Then we have obviously therapy where we start looking at challenging your thinking because the hormones are all over the place. You don't have sleep. Mm. You're not thinking rationally. So what I often get mothers to do is write down a trigger Mm. that might set off their anxiety. So for a lot of moms, it's that, you know, when the newborn is kind of waking up and it's uh, and they're moving, but their eyes aren't open, but you know Mm. that in the next 10 minutes or the next half an hour, this baby's going to be awake, Mm -hmm. is then put down that trigger on a piece of paper and write down why is that making you anxious? And then we ask ourselves three questions. So mom number one might say, well, because I can't go back to sleep because in the next half an hour, she's awake. Mm. Another mom might say, I didn't feed her enough just now. Another mom might say, she's going to wake the whole household or it's going to be a problem for my husband. And then we ask ourselves three questions. We say, is this realistic? Is Mm. it Does it have facts to support that that's what's going to happen, yes or no? Would someone objective agree that this is a problem, yes or no? And would a judge state this is a problem, yes or no? If you cannot answer yes to all three of those questions, Mm. it means you're distorting your thinking. So, for example, let's say practically your baby's got a fever of 38.7 degrees Mm. and you straight away think, I'm going to have to get to casualty. This baby's got COVID. Mm. We say, do you have facts to support that? Well, no. The baby hasn't seen anyone. Mm. Would someone objective agree with you? No, because there's no COVID going around at the moment or there's no runny nose. And number four, would a judge in a court of law agree with you? If, however, there's a yes, yes, yes there or any yes, then it means maybe your thinking's rational. Mm. 90% of the time, so this is called cognitive behavior therapy, mm. 90% of the time your thinking is distorted or irrational compared to what the trigger is that set it off. Mm. And that's important, mm. that you've taken something and almost exaggerated, yes. right? So yes. you've got this thing. This thing that's happened or that's about to happen and you have in your thinking exaggerated it to a place where it probably, it's not, it's not real. And that's like new parents often, I describe to them, you're wearing a pair of sunglasses or, or spectacles and they are blurry and you put them on and every little thing is Mm. seen through that lens. Mm. So you feel insecure as a mother. But then when you speak to a friend or Mm. someone posts something on on social media, you feel insecure about that friendship. Then you feel insecure about yourself. It's like it distorts everything that you look through in that lens. It becomes something that you live in anticipatory anxiety. Mm. So that's that's what I talk about. Anxiety being functional Mm. at the beginning when you have your baby. You get anxious when it cries, you feed it, and your anxiety goes down, and you go to sleep. Hmm. As the baby gets older and you sleep deprived, 
you suddenly anxious in anticipation of mm. the baby crying. Mm. You're anxious in anticipation of having to get in the car. That's when it becomes dysfunctional. Mm. And that anxiety gets your heart rate up. It gets a, a whole lot of other anxiety-provoking symptoms which make it feel far worse than it is when nothing has actually happened. Mm. How could one incorporate mindfulness into all of this? I mean, I'm already starting to think about, I love this idea of, first of all, kind of determining what the triggers are, followed by, you know, making rational or realistic this thing that's triggered you by answering those questions, and then following with a, so does this mean that my thinking is distorted or not? Okay. So so could one even link that to some kind of mindfulness practice? Are you breathing in and out? Are you help me think through how we can also incorporate that? Absolutely you can because with anxiety what happens is heart rate goes up, you breathe faster, you then feel like all the blood is being pulled from the extremities, right? Mm-hmm. So you feel like oh, I'm going into a panic state. The secondary effect of that is your baby can feel it. That's why mm. oftentimes you give the baby to someone else and the baby calms down. I had a mom with triplets who cannot understand, obviously, a relaxation exercise. But what we did is get the mom to play it out loud and her to practice it. And what happened is these babies would know when that exercise came on, mom would be chilled they would kind of not even knowing what the exercise is saying in terms of deep breathing, but almost also go into that calm state. And so it became like a Good stimulus day. response. Mm. Yes. Or suddenly it's it's why mothers play music to their babies in utero. Mm. And I never believed that would work until my third child, we used to, to get the others to bond with him, is play a the mobile tune to my tummy. And when he was born, Mm. when we played that, he would respond. Mm. He would respond and lie in his cot as though he recognized that noise. Mm. And he recognized that that music. And so the same could work with a relaxation exercise. Okay. Oh, I think it's been uh, quite an interesting topic. I particularly liked... You know, some of the contributions about the need to destigmatize. I also enjoyed um, some of the reflections around, you know, the role that fathers also have to play. And I think, you know, some of these uh, wonderful, very practical tips and tools and techniques you've given can really assist uh, the mother who's navigating postnatal depression. So thank you so much for your time. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to the hashtag Faring Pod. Join the conversation by following us on social media. We are on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube under Faring South Africa. Have you been diagnosed with IBD? Download the Faring IBD Health Diary app today. The Faring IBD Health Diary app is available on the Apple App Store and the Android Google Play Store.